Hello, hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Talking Salford. My name is Lachlan Campbell, and I will be your host for this special, which is all about International Day of Women and Girls in Science, Women in STEM Day for short. I'm sat here in the Serenity Room in our new Science, Engineering and Environment building, the perfect place to talk about all things scientific. Today's special is a two-parter, where we will bring in one of our university's renowned scientists for a discussion on the day and its significance in 2024, before moving to an in-depth chat with one of our leading scientific alumni who is forging a career as a scientist. So, let's begin by introducing the university's very own professor of microbiology, Dr. Chloe James. How are you, Chloe? Hi, I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Um, Thank you so much for being with us today. So to recap on on Chloe's story, she graduated from the University of Edinburgh in 1998 with a BSc in medical microbiology and in her own words, discovered the awesomeness of bacteriophages during a PhD studentship at the University of Liverpool. She then followed this up by heading across the pond to become a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Florida for three years, followed by two years in France for a project on the transport antibiotics in Ex-Marseille University. Chloe then moved back to the UK and returned to the University of Liverpool as a Wellcome Trust postdoctoral fellow, it's a mouthful, and was appointed lecturer in medical microbiology at Salford in 2012. And in 2022, she was awarded chair in microbiology. So Chloe, let's get into the importance of this day. What do you think is the biggest priority that we should be focusing on when it comes to thinking about this day. Is it about encouraging women and girls to pursue a career in science or is it about supporting junior female scientists to take the next step? So, of course, both are really important. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think that um, as... So I'm a microbiologist that's part of life sciences uh, that tend to be focused on biology. Um, And in the biology subjects... It's really evident, walk into any lecture theatre, the girls are dominating, which is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have clearly over 50% girls um, who are taking on undergraduate courses in these areas. So at Salford, we've got um, biomedicine, we've got biology, we've got human biology, infectious diseases. And there are loads of women, which is really, really lovely to see. Um, but we've got to keep that momentum up. Mm-hmm. Um, my experiences are, though, that as you move up the ladder, um, as you become more senior, that ratio starts to change. Okay. Um, I think there's an important caveat in that I'm, I'm an academic and my career has been all the way through academia. From these areas, though, academia is not the only route. So there are women that are going into healthcare, into industry, uh, into teaching and all kinds of other jobs uh, but I can only talk about my own experiences and I've certainly noticed especially now I'm at professor level quite often I you know I find myself counting um, how many other women are in the room Um, and sometimes often about a third of us are women okay Um, sometimes I'm the only one and actually it's quite worrying how often I find that I'm the only one in the room Mm. here in 2022 Um, So I think that it's really important that we find new ways to enable women in more junior positions to feel that that moving up is for them if that's what they want to do. Um, And I think there's still quite a lot of work to be done in that area. I mean, it's not on account that we don't have lots of junior female scientists. I mean, 
just to recount some of the stats, the number of women accepted onto full-time STEM undergraduate courses increased by over 50% between 2011 and 2020. And for Salford's record here, um, in 2023 to 2024, so the current academic year, on our programs when you can study microbiology, 65% are female, and that goes to 68% in biomedical science and 78% for human biology and infectious diseases with a foundation year. So at least at uh, Salford, I guess we can say that we, we have a lot of women that are studying these subjects that are taking them on board. But as you say, it seems to be that the more you progress up the ladder, is it amount of fewer opportunities or is it a lack of maybe visibility of seeing women take on those more leadership roles that I guess encourages women at these junior levels to pursue a career further in? It's a complex issue. Yeah. I think, you know, it's stating the obvious really, but women are incredibly diverse and there isn't one sort of model woman that we have to think about what the challenges are. Um, I think that traditionally society has judged that because women are the ones that give birth, uh, that women are the carers, they're the, the main carers at home, they have those responsibilities. And I think a lot of times people have sort of hidden behind this almost as an excuse really to say, okay, well, women have kids and that's why they don't end up pursuing a career because they stop because they have children. Yeah. And actually I want to really push back against that because um, for starters, there's an awful lot of women that don't want kids and don't have kids. Mm -hmm. um, I personally, I've, I've had two children in my career and my husband is the main carer and was the main carer when they were small. Um, and I feel that uh, th there's a lot of men that are, that are, you know, that, that feel a bit affronted by saying that women, that women are the main carers because actually times have moved on and men and women both have equal parental responsibilities. Yeah. So I think that's one issue, but it's only mm. one issue. Uh, I, I think that can be tackled by um, changing policies on things like paternal leave and things like that, making yeah. them equal to, to maternal leave to kind of help that. Um, I, I think that women feel a lot of guilt. They feel, and, I, and I've definitely felt that going through my career, Yeah, that... I feel guilty on the kids if I'm working too hard. I feel guilty on work and on students um, if I take time out with the family. Um, but that's, that's just something that I have to live with. So, yeah. but that's one issue. Mm. Um, I think that another issue is about uh, confidence and self-esteem. Um, and, you know, there's loads of women on our courses who are totally bossing it and are really confident. But I do still feel that society makes that more challenging for women to feel confident and feel like they, they can put themselves up for these positions. Yeah. Um, I, and I know for sure, sort of anecdotally, I guess, I've been on quite a lot of interview panels um, for jobs uh, for various different stages of careers. And quite often women will feel like they have to tick every single box before they feel that they can apply for that job and will think about it and will want to know everything and read everything and feel really confident that they have every single one of those skills mm -hmm. to feel that, that that job's for them. And I feel like that's less common in men. I think that there's a lot more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, sort of entitlement where men will just be like, yeah, I want to do that job. I'll apply for it. I can do that. And there's a lot more confidence. So I think there's work that needs to be done 
to help women feel more confident and self-assured that actually they are totally up for the job. Okay. Do you think what some of the applications, the way they're written, are potentially just more, just more affecting females than for men yeah I, th I think there are ways that job adverts can be written that are mm. more accessible yeah. um to people from from all different backgrounds so we're just not just talking about gender here but from mm. all different backgrounds they yeah. can be written differently to be more inviting and, and sometimes they can be quite exclusive yeah um and so i think there is work to be done there can we talk a little bit about um, your academic upbringing then? Did you have many um, female role models around when you were at university and when you got started actually working at higher education? Were there many female role models around for you? Did you feel like um, it was there were always people that you could go to, to to talk about your career and about taking those next steps? So it's weird actually because in my earlier career, I don't think there really were many female role models at all, mm. but... I didn't see that as a challenge at the time. I, I don't know if it if it was a subconscious thing, but all of, I've never had a female boss. All of my bosses have always been men. Yeah. Um, not that that was a barrier. I've I've been really lucky in that everyone has always been very very supportive. Um, I've always felt comfortable in a male dominated area. I went to a boys' school for sixth form. Mm. Um, so I think. I'm trying to think of the first time that I had a strong female role model. When I moved to Florida, um, there were a couple of other postdoctoral researchers at the same level as me, but they were a bit more senior. Okay. Uh, they taught me a lot. Um, and actually, we were quite female dominant in, in, in our lab when the mm. boss wasn't around. And, and that, was, um, that was quite empowering. I, I really surprised myself when I went to Florida because I didn't, really think that I was up to the job and I didn't I, I don't know where the confidence came for, for to, to apply in the first place um, and then I had a very quick interview and was surprised to be offered it and just sort of said yes without mm. thinking and I was suddenly there um, and that kind of gave me confidence I think from that point I think I knew I can do this um, because I guess I was a little bit different. I was in the, the in the limelight and I was doing okay. So that was, I suppose, the first time where I felt like I was sort of working together with other women. But again, we were kind of on a level. And it it wasn't really until I got my lectureship that I even noticed that that there were any particular challenges for me as a woman. Um, and I got chatting to uh, someone from another university. So when you're examining a PhD student in the, their final viva, you have about four hours where you sit and you pour over their, their four years of research and you talk about it and you explore it together uh, with someone from another university. So I was doing this, and there was this woman, I'd never met her before, um, and after the Viva, you get to know each other quite well during that time. And after the Viva, um, she sort of took me aside and said, look, you know, the, the, the congratulations on your new position. This is great. Have you got any female role models? Have you got any mentors? And I was like, uh, no, do I need one? Um, and she sort of prepared me for what was to come that I hadn't really thought about before. Mm -hmm. um, and she, at the time, I thought, well, 
that's not my experience. I, do, I don't find those challenges. But then as time went on quite quickly, I did come across those challenges. And she had offered me an olive branch, really. She'd said, look, I'm very happy to be a mentor. I'm very happy anytime you need anything. Drop me a line, come over. I've got your back. And that, it was quite, I felt quite emotional about that. That, that meant a lot to me. Um, and I've kept that with me. And I've had a number of other women um, since then that have offered similar olive branches and said, I'm here. And, and I, it meant a huge amount. And it gives you that confidence to feel like you're not on your own. That's fascinating, Chloe. It really is. Um, and one thing I want to kind of touch on there is it sounds like you had a very different experience when you were in America. So what was the experience like in, in France? And do you think that across across the world, when it comes to higher education and, and science, just careers in science, that various countries have very different ways of looking at this um, this wider wider thing of getting more women and girls into, into science? Like, can you speak about any of that? Yeah, absolutely. The Florida was interesting because it was really international and there was loads of postdocs and it was a fantastic experience. Um, when I moved to France, and so I moved to France because um, I'd ha- we'd had our, our daughter in Florida okay. um, and I felt like my mum couldn't travel at the time. I was very far from home and I felt like I really needed to be closer to family. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't quite ready to move all the way home. Um, so that, that's why So I moved to Europe so that I could be closer there. Um, and that was a really exciting project because it was really multidisciplinary. So there were microbiologists, pharmacists, chemists, uh, health practitioners, and biophysicists and mathematical modelers from all across Europe. And we traveled around quite a lot. Um, and we had to move to each um, each other's uh, centers to present our work. Um, and I went up to Bremen where the, the, where the biophysicists were focused. And that was a real eye-opener to me because I hadn't realized the world of biophysics has a lot less women in it. Interesting. Um, So when I got there, everyone was was blokes and there was a lot of testosterone in the room. And I gave my presentation and I was was an established postdoc by now. I I felt quite expert and quite confident in my field. Um, And I gave my presentation and the audience directed their questions to my boss and not to me, which I was yeah. really taken aback by. Taken aback, yeah. um, and, I, you know, I was quite flabbergasted at the time and a bit shell-shocked. And then afterwards, I felt really quite angry about that. Mm. Um, but I do think that it sort of empowered me to, to, to prove <laughs> that I do know what I'm talking yeah. about. Um, and actually, that, that kind of made me even more driven, to be mm. honest. Uh, so I, th- I think it was quite an enriching experience, uh, even though it's a bit shocking at first. Sounds like it's it's an experience that has stuck with you and motivated mm. you rather than something which um, I guess you kind of seen in, with big disappointment. It's something which you used to channel, I guess, your passion for supporting and helping others as well um, in their careers. Yeah. Would yeah. you say that would be accurate? Yeah, absolutely. And when things like that happen, it's important to know that you've got support from other people. And I yeah. did have, and I, and I acknowledge that. Um, and I know how important it was for me to feel like, yeah, okay, if one person treats you a bit oddly, everybody else backs you up. Uh, and, so, and so you know that, that just that you're supported, I guess. Um, and I do feel really, really passionate that that's now my role, especially, you know, I was promoted uh, last summer to, to professor 
And well, there's not lots, there's not a lot, there's not really far to go after that. Um, but now I feel so my my purpose has shifted a little bit. Um, and I know that it's my turn now. Not that I didn't do it before, but I feel even more strongly that my role is in supporting others and empowering them uh, to achieve what they want to. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess I'd be very curious to know, you mentioned a few of them, I guess, over the course of this conversation, but what's the the biggest lessons you've learned over your career since becoming an academic? Like what moments just, besides the ones you spoke about, stand out over the years? It's one of those, there's like a million swimming around in my yeah, head. And it's no, like, which no, one no, am yeah. I going to fish out? Well, I would say that something something that I did that I think was a big step change in my career that I'm really glad that I did um, and I think will always stick with me is um, there's, as a microbiologist, we connect not only with people in our own institutions, but nationally and internationally as well. And we often do that through societies. Um, so there's an organization called the, the Microbiology Society. And I love what they do. They produce this brilliant magazine. Um, and I often use their work in my lectures and things like yeah. that. So I've always wanted to get a little bit more involved. And as you become more senior, you want you want to sort of widen your net and you want to um, have a little bit more impact beyond your local environment. So I really wanted to get involved with them. And I was a bit, oh, but, you know, am I good enough? imposter syndrome was setting See. in which which is a real thing uh, and I suffer from a lot sort of thinking oh everyone thinks I'm an idiot um, and they had this scheme called a shadowing scheme uh, where you could have a taster of what it's like behind the scenes at the society yeah so I signed up for it and I got a place um, and I'm so glad that I did it because straight away Everybody was really welcoming. I saw that um, I absolutely had a place there and that I could do loads more things. And before I knew it, I was applying to be like the boss of one of their main um, uh, uh, committees. Okay. Um, and so I applied. It was, a, it was an election and I got voted the chair of the Impact and Influence Committee. And so I served. I've just finished my service now. I served for three years. Um and so from going to like, oh, am I good enough to be involved at all? Suddenly I was leading one of their three committees yeah. and that opened so many doors for mm. me. Um, and so now I'm involved not only in science and teaching and research, but also in driving policy and talking to government. Um, and I really feel like I've got a massive sense of purpose. And so I, I suppose the lesson there is what have I learned? The lesson is... To believe in yourself and to have the confidence to to try something out yep. because really you've got nothing to lose. And, and so when, when I tried that out, it really um, was incredibly fruitful for me. And so I think on that note then, so uh, for those that are looking to study some, a STEM subject, um, what would be your advice to female students in 2024? Because I, I know you have a very leadership role at the university and you, you'll be around lots of students, but what advice do you think that you'd be giving them in the year ahead? So I suppose just touching on, on what I said before really is, is believing in yourself. Um, you know, be kind to yourself, believe in yourself, trust your own feelings, because actually um, I think that you're probably um, a lot better than you think you are. So I would say the number one is believe in yourself. Mm -hmm. 
The second one I would say would be to take support from people. So when people offer you support, grab it, grab yeah. it with both hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I, th- I think that I can probably speak for most women in STEM, that those of us that have managed to progress through STEM feel really passionately about women being in STEM. Um, and, and we want to help and we want to be supportive. Uh, so I would say, yeah, grab that support when it's offered. Yeah. Um, and, and go for it, really. You know, if, if, if an opportunity comes up, grab it. If it doesn't quite work out, well, it didn't quite work out. But if you don't grab it, it's never going to work out. So I would say to take those opportunities when they come. Chloe, it's been so lovely to have you talk about all of this today. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. So after hearing from one of our university's leading scientists, we now turn our attention to one of Professor James's protégés, Path Arenega Bo, who is a microbiology laboratory scientist at the UK Health Security Agency. She joins us down the line from Porton Down, near Salisbury, situated on one of the UK's leading and top secret science and defence campuses. Path, welcome to the podcast. Hi. <laughs> Lovely to have you with us today. So, so Path is originally from Castellón, a region north of Valencia in Spain, and started her higher education journey at the University of Valencia studying biotechnology. For the last year of her degree, she decided to come to Salford as an Erasmus student on the one-year exchange in September 2012. She loved it so much at Salford that when the university was looking for PhD students, she applied and ended up working with Chloe for her PhD here in October 2013 for four years where she was looking into the bacteria Campylobacter and how chickens get it from the water on farms. So after graduating, she joined the biosafety team at Public Health England, where she was part of a team working on the role of the built environment in relation to infection during the COVID-19 pandemic. Last September, she then became a food, water and environmental scientist at the UK Health Security Agency, the organisation which replaced Public Health England in October 2021, and is currently looking at the bacteria found in raw pet food. So, Path, firstly, I would love to know what sparked your interest in microbiology? So... I, I always liked microbiology. Um, I really fell in love with biology when I was studying for the equivalent to A-levels that we do in Spain. I just thought it was really interesting. Um, I loved everything about it, but it was the first time that we had really looked into the genetics and the molecular biology. And even though we keep subjects quite broad in Spain. So, you know, we all have to do history and philosophy. And in my case, I had three languages for A-levels because I live in a region where Catalan is one of the official languages as well. So we had to do Spanish and Catalan and English. Mm -hmm. And I also really enjoyed languages and other aspects. Um, I really liked the idea of, of doing something around biology. So that's why I chose uh, biotechnology. And then I actually didn't do as much microbiology during my degree, but I still I still liked it and I still liked the bits with it. So when there was an opportunity in Salford to do a PhD in microbiology, I thought it was a good idea to go for it. And I, I don't regret it for a second. I'm, I'm, I, I really love microbiology. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's great to hear. I mean, had you always envisaged this being your career? Was there any other kind of 
uh, industry or kind of role that you envisaged when you were younger at all? Or was it always going to be, no, I want to work in microbiology? No, not at all. I, I, I really enjoyed many things in doing my education and I saw myself and I, I still would potentially see myself in the f- in the future as a writer. I I really like I the idea of like journal- journalism and like investigating mm-hmm. a story. I'm a very social person, so you know I could go after your job and just chat <laughs> to, to interesting people. Like <laughs> that really appeals to me as well. Um, so it, it's not the only career that I that I can see myself doing, but it's it's one that I enjoy. Well, I mean, I better watch out then because um, I think the thing is, is that, oh, I mean, science journalism is fascinating because obviously it's a it's an area where you're spending a lot of time, I guess, from my perspective, about trying to explain things to people that wouldn't necessarily be able to understand it from the start. Um, but you're, you're a great communicator. We'll say that about your path from the conversations we've had previously. So I think you're going to make this really easy for our audience to kind of understand the scientific experience. So it, it's yeah, it's going to be a great experience for the both of us. Um, and talking of experiences, can you, can you tell me a little bit about how you found Salford when you arrived? I, I absolutely loved my time in Salford. Um, I first arrived as an Erasmus student, so it is a shame actually that the UK is no longer part of the Erasmus program since since Brexit, because you know that was just an amazing experience. Um, I loved the campus. Uh, when I first arrived, I lived in Castle Irwell, which doesn't exist anymore, but that was great. When when else do you get to live with? all your friends in the same place like that was just amazing and and just you know just one of my favorite things is how international Salford is and that's Mm -hmm. you know not only during my Erasmus year when I stayed for my PhD as well they like I studied with people from all over the world and I I really really enjoyed that um, I loved having the gym on campus. I loved being part of the clubs. I, I did running club. I did salsa. And it's just a great location because it's so close to Manchester, but it's also really close to the Peak District. And, you know, if you like going out on walks, um, that's great. You can even get there to some places on the train. You don't even need to drive. It's quite close to the Lake District as well. So I also used to go quite a lot um, to spend time with friends there. Um, so in general, it was all really positive. Um, the biggest challenge I remember is some of us um, didn't have a lot of funding sometimes for our mm-hmm. PhDs, and that, that could be a little bit challenging at times. And some people got a little bit, I don't know, maybe too worried about university rankings and stuff like that, which coming from Spain where we don't really have that was always like a strange concept to me and not something that worried me at all um and I just I don't know you know all the people most of the people that I'm I'm in touch with from that I studied with in Salford have done really great on their careers and are doing great things so I think sometimes people get like too hung up about that when it doesn't really have such an effect um and one thing that I really liked as well is that having a relatively small research community like even though it wasn't small but you know relatively small to other places one really positive thing that it had is that it got everybody talking to each other a lot more and just Mm -hmm. kind of like getting a little bit out of your immediate 
research interest area and I think it created a lot of opportunities for us and you know like one example is that I'm part of a collaborative paper that we brought around um, microbial ecology and it wasn't directly what I was studying but it was something that I you know I, I did look into it a little bit and it was really interesting to be able to get together with all these people and, and talk about it. And I think maybe in other, in bigger places, you don't get those exposures as much. And I that see. was something that now with time, and when I look back, I was, um, I always think, oh, we were really lucky to have that actually. Can you tell me a little bit about how studying in the UK was very different from studying in Spain? It was very different, actually. I think in Spain, degrees are really intense. You have to be there, present. Um, there's a lot of lessons. Um, there's a lot of like practical lessons as well. So that has its benefits. I think in that sense, we, you know, when I arrived in Salford, I had the opportunity to do kind of like a placement with one of the PhD students. And everybody was quite surprised that I was quite skilled in the lab in a way for a student um, and I think it's, it's a consequence of that um, but one thing that I really liked about um, the UK and obviously I'm only talking about my personal experience in two universities um, but I, I really learned how to write properly here and how to reference things properly and that's something that hadn't really been explicitly to me in Spain and it's something that I use every day since I graduated <laughs> in my career so it is really important um, and we, we did get a lot of practice on that there was a lot of essays to write and you had to go do your own research do your own reading and then come up with something um, so it's perhaps less guided and that's also good because you know you have to explore the topics yourself and um it teaches you to be more independent maybe yeah so i so, like i like both things and it's difficult to have both you can't really have both um so i suppose i had the best of both worlds <laughs> doing like a little bit in spain and a little bit here what was it that made you then want to do your phd in england then um, so, you know, I was really young and I hadn't really planned ahead that much, to be to be completely honest. Um, I was planning to do a master's in Spain, but then um, I, I heard, I didn't hear really good things about it. So then I was like, okay, then I'm not going to do that. And I was really enjoying, you know, Salford and, and Manchester. I always wanted to live abroad and it really felt like, there was so much more to explore that I didn't get round to in, in one year. And, you know, as I said, I, microbiology was something that had always interested me. So mm -hmm. it was, it was an easy, it was an easy decision, easy decision. To, to stay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I think it'd be really interesting to hear about uh, if you were encouraged to, to consider a career in microbiology by, by those around you, was it very much seen as you were studying that, that this is a route to a really viable career? Um, I think so. You know, in my immediate, my immediate family and friends, um, they were quite keen for for me to study something in science and technology. I think there was this, perhaps this idea that that yeah, that it would lead to 
to a good career. I don't really know what it was based on because the reality is that it's actually really hard to do research in Spain and um, especially in the public sector, like mm -hmm. the working conditions are not great and it's, it's quite it's quite difficult so I don't know I don't really know what it was based on but I I was quite encouraged yeah did you did you encounter any barriers to pursuing a career in this area not during my education for sure um I mm -hmm. had really great you know teachers and and you know and then lecturers in university and I've never you know felt that I was treated differently um for any of my characteristics. I think then you go into the working place and um, as, a, as a young person, I'm not really sure if as a young woman, um, you can always, sometimes you can be a little bit dismissed and okay. um, and people maybe put it down to like lack of experience or but I don't think it's always that I think sometimes you just want to do things a little bit differently and people are used to doing things in a certain way and maybe they don't like it and it's easy to you know it's easier to challenge someone when they have less experience um, we sometimes don't feel as comfortable challenging people that have more experience but it shouldn't be that way it should be about the, the the ideas um as a as a woman i do see it around me in the in 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 my workplace that when you have kids that's when things change and some people perceive you differently like you're not mm -hmm. gonna be as committed to your job anymore uh and you cannot really because you know when you do when you do research and this is not only microbiology but any any research um it's quite an involved job you have to be there you have to be there in the lab a lot of the time um and even when you're not in the lab yourself because you might have people you supervise or manage or, or whatever you still need to be very much very present and looking at all the results and it's perhaps a job that is more difficult to do flexibly. Um, uh, so I think for this particular job, you can be perceived differently. And I have seen it around me and it's a shame because it doesn't reflect reality. I think it's mostly based on stereotypes that are not necessarily true. And um, so, so yeah, I. I haven't, I, I don't have any kids, um, so I haven't perhaps felt it myself, but I have definitely seen it. I think that that's really interesting. I mean, with, with Chloe earlier, we talked about the importance of seeing female leaders in, in this industry and having them around you and being able to see people in positions where you'd, you'd like to get to. Yeah, um, I think, you know, having role models is super important because, as you said, you can't really sometimes it's difficult to see yourself in places when you don't see anybody that looks like you. And I really like, there's like a Nigerian author, um, that I'm going to try and say her name, but I'm probably going <laughs> to slaughter this, but she's called Chimamanda Nakotchi Adichie. Um, and she's a great writer. And when she was a kid, she already wanted to be a, a writer. And all, all the stories she wrote, like all her characters were white because that was all the stories she had ever read. The characters were always white. So, you know, even though she was black herself, she couldn't 
picture black people being in stories because she hadn't seen any and that that's really stayed with me so i think having visible female leaders is really important and in uk to say at the moment actually we 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 have a lot of visible female leaders because the chief executive is Jenny Harris and you know the chief scientific um, officer is Isabel Oliver the chief medical officer is Susan Hopkins and she's been everywhere Mm -hmm. during the pandemic on telly Um, so it's it's great we do have we do have those very visible female leaders but it's it's necessary but not sufficient no I I see And, and that that's really interesting to hear so can you tell me a little bit about what it was like working as a scientist during the pandemic? Because hopefully this was a once in a lifetime occasion. Um, but what, what what was it that you really learned from that experience? It, it really was. Um, it was. It was difficult to get out of my comfort zone. And I've never worked with viruses before. So, uh, you know felt a little bit as, as an imposter at the beginning, especially, um, until you realize that it's a lot of the same techniques. And as you said in the introduction, I was working in a team that really focused on the kind of like the what was the role of the of the built environment rather than, than on particular pathogens. So we had a lot of knowledge that we could apply quite easily. Um, Mm -hmm. So we looked at things, for example, there was a lot of expertise in the team around ventilation, the effect of ventilation, uh, aerobiology, how to detect pathogens in the air, uh, sampling, so a surface sampling. So we could apply all those things. So um, I got over that imposter syndrome and was like, no, actually, I can do this. Um, The other thing I learned was how difficult it is to communicate really complex results, especially Mm. to people that up until the day before didn't have any interest in in microbiology and didn't have any background on it as a result. So I worked a lot with the transport industry. And as you can imagine, this wasn't really high on their priority list before the pandemic. Um, But then suddenly everything changed and it was the most important thing they had to deal with. And that was that was really interesting, you know, just because I had kind of done it a little bit before so during my PhD we talked a little bit with like um the poultry industry but you know they they are a little bit aware there's like poultry diseases they obviously know about campylobacter is a huge thing in the industry so you're talking to non-experts but you're talking up to people that know a little bit about the topic uh, but this was completely different and it was it was interesting. It was really, it was a really interesting situation like, because people were really interested, obviously. But mm-hmm. you know, it was all so recent. And but I think what I learned the most uh, was how important it is to be modest, and, and especially at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, really, really people that were considered experts in their fields got things wrong and got things really wrong, and and you know, it can happen. Um, with mm-hmm. situations like this, but it, you know, it, I, it taught me that that it is important to to be modest and to be open-minded. 
and maybe not to rely on people just because they are experts on the field. Although you do need to hear, listen to experts, and that's no one, that's no one saying, please, <laughs> please do get vaccines and all that sort of thing. Yeah. But you know, like it is a, a healthy degree of questioning is is appropriate as well. I think one thing that jumps to mind here is how do we think that because of the pandemic, because of how because of how much science and the and vaccines and um and the various ways in which we talked about the virus being spread became so commonplace in the media and in our regular lives that do you think it might have sparked quite an interest in maybe in the younger generation to find a little bit more about how how the pandemic came to be and maybe got a few more people interested in science as a subject i think so you know i i i hope so because it is a really interesting time to to be involved in microbiology and in other sciences but you know in microbiology which is why i know the most about um is is such an exciting time in in infectious diseases in public health in surveillance there's not only all these new techniques um that are now you know becoming routine after the pandemic there's also these new ways of working and these new ways of collaborating which is also really exciting and actually you know when people said oh i can't believe how quickly the vaccine came into play um a lot of it was thanks to the ebola vaccine and mm. you know that the, the, the ebola vaccine was also developed very quickly um because it was a similar situation in a smaller scale in the sense that it didn't affect the whole planet like COVID-19 did. But it got people, you know, sharing data and like working together. And I think that was really important actually to, to get the vaccine so quickly for the pandemic. But, you know, outside of infectious diseases, there's so many advances on the microbiome and, you know, how it relates to health, how it relates to nutrition, um, it's just a really exciting time, and I hope more people consider it as a as a career. Oh, that's lovely! And can you tell me a little bit more about what you do now? Can you, yeah, so explain what a day to day week looks like for you now. Um, so because I only joined the team in September, and I come from a research background and now I have a research position in the food, water and environment labs, um, but the lab itself does a lot of like routine testing uh, for all sorts of like food, water and environmental samples, um, but they do a lot of work with a small food premises, uh, they do a lot of work with local authorities, um, look at if there's any outbreaks uh, when there's the source is suspected to be either food or water, then there's testing of those samples. So it's actually a lot to learn for me. Um, there's also a big range of pathogens that we work with and a lot of them I've never worked with before. So there's a lot to learn. So at the moment, my week uh, looks a lot with um, like training and reading and trying to learn about these things. But um, we're also doing a survey on raw pet food and that has been really interesting mm. because the reason why we're doing this is because robot food, even though it's still a very minoritary share of the pet food market, is increasing really quickly. And over the last years, there's been a, a, a steep increase in sales. And 
um, these products actually contain can contain a, a lot of pathogens. Um, so we're looking at Campylobacter, Salmonella, Shiga toxin producing E. coli, which can cause really nasty infections, um, MRSA, which people might be familiar uh, with because it was very big in hospitals a few years ago. Yes antibiotic resistant E. coli, and there's very little regulation about this, this food at the moment. And, um, and I get the feeling that the consumers that are buying these foods are not aware of this risk. So the risk is for people to get infected while feeding their pets if hygiene measures are not um, correct. Um, there's also the risk that the pets might get the infection or get colonized and then, then be spreading this bacteria around the house. And particularly for people that have like, you know, young kids, you say you've got a young, a young mm. son. If you, you know, you know, they put everything on their mouth and they touch everything. So, you know, you might be like, oh, no, I'm going to wash my hands and I'm going to keep everything clean. But it is very difficult in practice. So we're very keen to, um, this is um, FSA funded study and actually the food standards agency has already put some advice uh, for consumers uh, on their web page but what you know the important thing is for people to be aware of of the risk that comes associated with this product i think that, that that's fascinating path and the kind of thing i think that we need to hear more about i guess uh, as, as a pet owner as a as an as a father to a young child yeah, it, we need to hear more about this. We need more people like you being able to speak publicly around what's going on and so we know the health risks that are involved with these kind of foods at the minute. Um, I think I think that's really well said and I think it's a great advert for, for a career in microbiology with these kind of um, studies you can go on to do. So, And that really brings me to, I guess, to the last question today. So uh, what would be your advice to, uh, to women that are studying microbiology now about what a career looks like in the field what advice would you give that person so i'm not i'm not sure i've i've only really worked in public health england and then uk to say um mm -hmm. so you know i don't i haven't experienced industry jobs um i've experienced a little bit of of uh, academia during my phd but i haven't really then follow on with postdocs or anything like that so i'm I can only give really generic advice and obviously as with all advice, always take with a pinch of, of salt. But a couple of things that I think I can say is um, the first thing, I, th I think there's this idea that uh, people that are successful in a science career are very clever. And, you know, you, you have to be clever to, to do well otherwise. And, and this perhaps happens even before people choose what degree to go for. And that's completely, you know, it's completely not true. Like we need people with loads of different skills. You don't have to be the best at maths to be successful in a career in microbiology. Like it's, it's just not true. So don't let anybody tell you you're not clever enough to do a PhD or you are not clever enough to go into like a science career because it's not it's not true um the second thing i want to say is you know try and like get used to the university resources in terms of preparing for interviews um 
because now looking back is one of the things that I was like, oh, that was I, I could have used that more. And, and you know, I'm coming from a, a working class background. Sometimes you don't have those role models in your immediate family. And you, it can be a bit difficult, you know, not to know whether you're getting paid enough, whether you should ask for more, more money, that those all, those sort of things like don't come naturally to a lot of us. Um, and I think the university does a good job um, helping with that. And um, yeah, I, I would recommend people to consider getting support and, and practicing because, you know, people say, oh, I'm not really good at interviews, but it's, it's like everything else, like you get better the more you do and the more you prepare, the better you are going to do. And I'll just say as well, you know, don't be afraid to change jobs or to apply for things, even though you don't take all the boxes. We know that men do that. So as women, we should do it as well. And, and you know, it, that's like an ideal person that usually doesn't exist. Um, so you have chances if you take some of the boxes and it's, it's all, it all depends on who else applies for the job and what impression you give, you give in the interview. So it's not just that. And I think sometimes we feel like you cannot leave a job unless you're really unhappy, but you can, you know, you can leave things that you're actually enjoying if it's not what, 100% what you want to do or if you just want to try something different for a while. That's a good enough reason. You don't have to be unhappy in a job to move on. And um, so, yeah, so that's my advice. <laughs> that, that was wonderful. There were some real golden nuggets in there. Thank you so much for that. And, and thank you for being a part of this episode. It's been really lovely to have your insight on what a career in science looks like. Um, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, have you enjoyed yourself? I have, yeah. Thank you, for, thank you for having me. And I have to say that I've been listening to other episodes of the podcast, and all the people that have come on have such a such amazing stories to tell that I was a little bit nervous. Oh no! no. <laughs> well, lovely to hear that you're a fan of what we've done so far, and great to have you be a part of what we're doing in this very, very unique special, which is all about women in STEM Day. Um, so look, thank you very much for, for joining us today, Path. And, and that brings an end to today's episode. So um, if you if you if you continue to like what you're hearing, if like Path, you've gone back through some of the old episodes, um, please do. They're all there, all there to see. We've done quite a few now and really loving season two. And I hope all of our listeners are too. So until next time, we will see you then.